we all have minions. We have our own army of minions. And so which minions do you have? You know, I want the funny ones and the happy ones and that'll turn the right things on and not the ones that are always screwing up what they're supposed to be doing. I'm Jane Z, and this is Farm to Future, the podcast all about eating better for the planet. Hello! So a bunch of you sent in questions for today's episode, and I thank you for your patience. It's been what feels like a long summer, but Chef Dr. Mike is back, and today we're talking all about poop, and our gut, and our gut bacteria, and breastfeeding, which turns out has a huge connection to our microbiome and immune system. You're also going to learn why you don't have to spend an arm and a leg on probiotics and ways to diagnose gut issues either at home or with your doctor. This is a fun one, so sit back, relax, grab a kombucha or some kefir. And if you're new here, welcome. Chef Dr. Mike is officially our resident culinary medicine expert. So if you stick around, you will certainly hear more from this wonderful man. So do subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, and you can find me, Jane Z, on Instagram at farm.to.future. All right, on to the show. We're back for a round three with our favorite chef, Dr. Mike. Hello, Mike. How are you doing? I'm doing great, Jane. Thanks for having me back today. I can't believe I haven't worn out my welcome yet, so this is great. <laughs> Thank you. I would say quite the opposite. I think you're <laughs> you're gathering more fans every time. So excited to dive into the topic of gut microbiome today, which I feel like has been all the rage. The last few years, everyone's been waking up to the world of gut health and realizing the gut-brain connection, gut-skin connection, gut-everything connection. And it's something that I personally have been looking a lot into because I've suffered from IBS in the past and looked at different ways to kind of help that with diet and sleep and stress and all that good stuff. But let's start out with like a 101. So why in general should we care about gut health? What's kind of your perspective from a culinary medicine point of view? Well, it, it's interesting because I could tell you back in the dark ages when I was in medical school, I was actually told that there really was no such thing as a gut microbiome and it didn't matter. Uh, it wasn't important. And basically, you know, some bacteria lived in our intestines and they kind of were able to eat things that we couldn't digest. And, and that was sort of it, really. And no connection, uh, no impact on our health, which was essentially it was like saying, well, yeah, there's this thing in your chest called the heart. Uh, but don't worry about it. it doesn't do much blood kind of just runs through it doesn't really play any kind of role to saying oh wow i want to grow up and become a cardiologist i think in the very near future you're going to see specialization within medicine that does nothing more than deal with the gut microbiome and so i think the first thing to put it into perspective is you know and over the course of, of the podcast we'll be talking about things that we do know but understand there's a ton we don't know still so when we talk about the gut microbiome, we're talking about those bacteria, but also, and this is not often discussed, other small wee minions that live in there. So there's protozoa, there are fungi, there are probably viruses that exist in there as well that we haven't been able to identify or we've only identified a few of them. Understand too that when we talk about the gut microbiome, we're primarily talking about those bacteria that live in our large intestine, but our whole intestinal tract starts at our oral pharynx, ends at the other end, 
And and it's kind of like talking about Napa Valley, right? Because you have these areas where Cabernet grows very well and other areas where Pinot grows very well. And they're what we call microenvironments. So, for example, the bacteria that live in our mouth, and some of, of which when we change our bacteria, the gut microbiome of our mouth is when we actually get cavities, believe it or not. Mm. I'll give you a quick example. It's not that sugar degrades your teeth. Sugar actually changes the pH of your mouth. And when you eat a lot of sugar and you have that sustained change in the pH, you get different bacteria that grow and you mm. promote the type of bacteria that like to eat your teeth away. And so that's a that's a, a very upfront first experience example of the gut microbiome. You know, I, I, when I was a little kid, I was told not to eat sugar because it rots your teeth. But it's actually the change of our gut microbiome that produces a microenvironment that grows unfavorable mm. bacteria that has an untoward health effect. So if we keep that model in our mind, then we could see that in these many other microenvironments in our gut, uh, right, we have our esophagus and then our stomach, that's one microenvironment. We have the small intestine, which is a whole different microenvironment. And then obviously we get into the large intestines and there's different areas within the large intestine and also within the small intestine. And, and what we really talk about and what we know about now, what we focus on, is those bacteria in our large intestine. But boy, there's, there's going to be like a universe of explosion of information and other things out there. And, and part of the reason when we talk about, well, we don't know, or this therapy for the gut microbiome may not be effective, it may not be that it's not that the gut microbiome isn't involved. It may be that we don't know all the players or have all the information or all the pieces of the puzzle uh, because we've only really started to learn about that within the last decade. And I'd say probably within the last five or six or seven years. And in terms of, you know, medical knowledge and scientific experience and discipline growth, that that's nothing. That's a newbie. Mm. So when you say that... When we talk about gut microbiome, we're mainly talking about the large intestine. Is that because that's the place where our food spends the longest in our body? It's because it's where poop comes from. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so one of the ways in which we can tell the bacteria that are living within us is to take fecal samples. And then we can do some things and look for the bits of the DNA and which bacteria they correlate to, and we can amplify uh, certain things. So, you know, mm. that's where we, we, you know, start to make poop. So that that's where why most of our knowledge is is derived from. <laughs> and one could literally say it's a bunch of you know shite. <laughs> It literally is. Uh, literally speaking, is. <laughs> speaking of poop, I get these subway ads and bus stop ads that are like, hey, like, would you like to participate in this study where they take healthy stool samples from people with healthy guts and I guess transplant them into people with gut issues? What's kind of the science behind that? So that is actually, believe it or not, a very, very old procedure called a, a mm. fecal transplantation. And it was done many, many years ago, um, particularly like for people, uh, and your audience may have heard this, uh, if you take antibiotics a lot or uh, you have a very sick gut, people can get what's called C. difficile overgrowth. And it's a predominance of what is normally kind of a, a just a passerby in your gut who just kind of is there and does nothing. And they kind of take over the whole gut. And what happens is people just waste away and you're, and 
the gut lining atrophies, you can't absorb food, nutrients, etc. And and even though you may even try to eat a lot, you you basically wither away and, and, and starve to death. So it's it's a very difficult condition to treat. And one of the sad things was it's often associated with prolonged antibiotic usage, which particularly decades ago, you know, that's all we had to treat people with, you know, like limb infections and things like that. And so you would treat, treat, treat with antibiotics. Maybe you finally get that infection under control. And then they had this, what we call C. difficile, and then they would end up dying from that. And what they uh, found uh, in the surgical literature is that they could take poop from healthy people and then transplant it into the intestines of people that C. difficile, the native types of bacteria would start to repopulate. But of course, that's a very risky operation. It's very invasive, obviously. And, and of course, if any of that were to contaminate and get outside the intestine into the belly fluid, then you can get peritonitis, which again, would require antibiotics and you're kind of this full circle. So it was reserved for very extreme cases, but it was quite successful. Thanks to modern technology, we have learned that, you know, we have more non-invasive ways of doing it, essentially a poop pill, where people mm. can take that and then it would release those bacteria into uh, the appropriate area of, of their large intestine, for example, and start to repopulate. That has been shown to be effective, you know, in a number of conditions. Mm. Interesting. I don't know how I feel about a poop pill, but if it'll solve your gut issues, why not? <laughs> well, what's, what's very interesting is a derivative of that was a study they did, and this is actually a phenomenal kind of seminal paper published in Nature, where they took identical twins. So their genetics, obviously, are exactly the same. And the only difference was one twin was fat and one, and obese, not just fat, but obese, and one t- twin was skinny. And they used mice because they, they couldn't do it on people. But they take these mice, uh, and we can raise strains of mice that have no gut microbiome. And they seed it, just like we were talking about, the gut of, of some mice with poop from, from the fat twin. And they seeded the gut of the other mice with the poop from the thin twin. And the mice that got the poop from the fat person, the obese person, got fat. And the other mouse remained normal weight. But mice do an interesting thing, which I'm very glad people don't do, which is when they're in a cage together, they eat each other's poop. And mm. and so what happened, though, is the mice that were obese, when they ate the poop from the skinny mice, they lost weight. Wow. That's... So you may have a whole poop-based diet industry in the future. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> Talk about farm to future. More like... Kind of like blows your mind, doesn't it? It really does. I could see that replacing our whole probiotics industry for one. <laughs> well, you know, weight loss is such a big business that clearly if somebody hit on that, people would like, I don't care. You know, I'll take the poop pill and lose the weight. Yeah. But the, the, the problem is if you don't change the reason that you got there in the first place, you're not going to get any sustained benefit. Right, 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 right. Did they figure out like what about the different microbiomes caused that weight gain versus loss? Like, was it well, certain strains of bacteria? Well, th- that's a, a great question. And we do know some generalities about certain strains and some other strains. The, the first question is like, do all humans have the same gut microbiome? And is it just a matter of kind of what we eat, et cetera? 
And the short answer to that is no. So even within families, the gut microbiomes vary. So there are some genetic components. There is a difference, for example, whether you're born by C-section or by natural vaginal birth, because it, it appears that as the baby comes through the vaginal canal in a natural childbirth, that actually is, some of that is taken in, and actually that's what kickstarts the baby's gut microbiome. So your gut microbiome is altered, you know, strictly by the method of your birth. Uh, there's also some evidence that, believe it or not, somehow it is translated from the mother to the baby in utero. So um, we all know that the, the baby's gut and gut microbiome go through a transformation because if you ever smell baby poop, it's, you know, it's, <laughs> and, and then it starts to change and become more like, you know, regular poop. And that is the changes that are going on in the gut microbiome. Our gut microbiomes, because of all these different influences, it's really like our fingerprint, right? So the FBI has categories of whirls and different types of general patterns of fingerprints, but we all know our individual fingerprint is unique. Mm -hmm. And so it seems like there are general patterns for a healthy gut microbiome, some general patterns that are associated with certain disease states, but the ultimate identification of your gut microbiome is unique to you like your own fingerprint. Interesting. So I was born by C-section and not to turn this into like a, a patient yeah. session, but does that mean that I'm missing certain parts of my microbiome that I should be getting? And do, do babies that are born by C-section, do they get supplemented with certain probiotics or something like that? So um, that leads sort of the second thing coming through the process, which is whether you were breastfed or not. So my short answer would be no. Um, you know, at, at this stage, you're probably not. Was your development altered from had you undergone a natural childbirth? Probably. Does that mean you don't have a healthy gut microbiome? No, not at all. You can have a natural childbirth, but uh, obviously we're talking so much these days about baby formula. Mm. But if you're a formula-raised baby, that impacts your gut microbiome differently than if you're fed breast milk. I see. Okay. So it's like a package deal kind of thing. Like you, you got the birth type, but then it's also your feeding method. Right. So one of the components of human breast milk, and we call these HMOs, not the place you go to get healthcare, but human <laughs> milk oligosaccharides. What's very interesting is that if we look at the components of human breast milk, which include fats and proteins and things like that, the third most populous component is a certain type of HMO or human milk oligosaccharide. What's interesting about this HMO is that the baby can't digest it. What it ends up doing is selecting out a particular type of bacteria to start growing in the baby's gut that mm -hmm. only feeds on that type of human milk oligosaccharide. That type of bacteria, believe it or not, then actually starts to turn on the baby's immune system genes. Hmm. So wow. we talk again about the interaction. We kind of mentioned how when we change the environment to a negative one, like we can get cavities and things. But having a healthy gut microbiome is also necessary because these bacteria are in constant communication with us, and particularly in communication with our immune system. So it's a little scary to think about, and I don't want the audience to freak out, but it is kind of like, well, who's controlling who? Because if there are bacteria like turning my fuse box, my circuit breakers on and off for my immune system in my gut, like 
Am I in control or are they in control? <laughs> are the millions um, of bacteria in there? Right. You know, so it's the minions, you know, we all have minions. <laughs> we have our own army of minions. And and so which minions do you have? You know, I want the, the, the funny ones and the happy ones and, <laughs> that'll turn the right things on and not the ones that are always screwing up, you know, what they're supposed to be doing. Uh, but yeah, so it's this interaction. And, and that's why, um, to get back to your original question, you know, where are we today? Today, we view that gut microbiome as a symbiotic organ. I mean, it's that integral to our function. And, and there's been, you know, several papers that look at what's produced and how these interactions happen and say, we can't, couldn't actually exist if we didn't have this gut microbiome. I mean, we couldn't physically manufacture and do the physiological processes that we need to survive without our gut microbiome. Wow. I mean, what would happen if we didn't have our gut microbiome? Would, would we just die? Yeah, well, uh, we, we probably would. We know, again, to go back to that example where we had to do poop transplants, when we give people antibiotics, right, the opposite of probiotics, mm -hmm. we killed off all their gut bacteria. What mm -hmm. happened? Eventually they died. Right. Wow, I'm learning so much. This is not <laughs> what I expected this, uh, this conversation to be. Um, but yeah, it's just powerful shite. <laughs> <laughs> I know, seriously. About four more times before we're done, right? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, that whole cascade of, uh, of breast milk and that unlocking your immune system, like I had never thought exactly. about that connection before. That's really, really cool. And it's, that, and it's interesting that those benefits seem to be not just for the infant, but it's, for example, the American Heart Association, American College of Cardiology has input into that, of, of which I'm a member. They recommend, you know, to breastfeed for a year, two years, et cetera. Why is that? Well, why would, you know, I as an adult cardiologist care if my patient was breastfed uh, for as long as possible? Well, it turns out when we look at that, that's an independent variable for how healthy they are in midlife. Uh, mm -hmm. in terms of how you handle lipids, uh, lipid profiles, overall heart health goes back to whether you were breastfed or not. So that's a very, you know, prolonged and powerful effect. And whether, you know, that's mediated all in part, some early on, not later, by the gut microbiome, we, we don't know that right now. But certainly it seems to be a, a logical point of study to say, hey, this seems to be important. So keeping that gut microbiome healthy, you know, particularly as we're younger, that yields dividends as we get older. Interesting. So that brings me to, you know, when you do look at your adult patients who struggle with gut issues, I mean, I'm guessing you don't prescribe them breast milk, but what are some, A, I guess, like, what are ways that we are currently destroying our gut? I'm guessing processed foods has something to do with that. And uh, the follow-up to that is, you know, with our damaged gut microbiomes, what are the right ways to go about healing them? So, uh, yeah, you're, you're spot on, as always. Uh, the Yeah, so there are lots of studies have correlated the consumption of ultra-processed foods with negative changes in the gut microbiome. And then to take that a step further, those changes that we see correlate with increased risk of certain diseases. For example, uh, just last week, a paper came out that correlated for every serving of ultra-processed food, you increased your risk of eventually having chronic kidney disease by 5%. So the clear correlation 
And the mediator of that, because we know that an ultra-processed food damages our gut microbiome in, in very profound ways, mm-hmm. uh, very substantial ways, and, and, and in short order as well. So there was a, another study done where they gave you know, horrible pizza, you know, the chain pizza to college students for free, because that's how you get volunteers for that study. (laughs) And uh, then they looked at their gut microbiome. And what they found is that within 48 hours, you were already seeing negative changes in terms of the character and composition of the gut microbiome. Hmm. Uh, Another study showed that just having that breakfast sandwich at the drive-thru could impact your gut microbiome in a negative way. The good news is it's fairly resilient. So much like the rest of our bodies, our gut microbiome seems to change as we age. So, you know, the gut microbiome of a senior citizen is not the same as when they were, you know, a newborn or a young child or an adolescent. But there are, again, as you mentioned, that sort of those healthy markers that we want to look for. And how do we sustain that whatever time of life that we're in? And one is obviously we can avoid the ultra processed foods or certainly try to cut down on them. Uh, Two is that it turns out that our ancestors were pretty darn smart. So when they did all these food preservation techniques working in concert with nature, and a lot of people know about kombucha and sauerkraut and kimchi and all these fermented foods, it turns out that those are natural probiotics. Cheese is, is another one. Kefir, which is a fermented uh, milk product from the Middle East. All these are just natural probiotics. And you don't have to be spending several hundred bucks a month for a pill if you incorporate lots of fermented foods into your diet. And when you do that on a regular basis, you're kind of sending in fresh recruits you know, to, to the scene, if you will. So, so that's another way that that we can do that when we have a a healthy gut by whatever method we've obtained it they're like your cat or dog you got to feed them you can't just buy them Mm -hmm. and keep them around they need food and and probably one of the reasons why you know in my mind we often hear you know got to eat more fruits and vegetables got to get more fruits and vegetables in there fruits and vegetables have lots of of healthful things but one of the things they have is is nothing that we metabolize directly as humans Right. So plants are sources of what we call Macs, which are are not like the Big Macs. You can't get it at the drive through. (laughs) Don't even go there. It's microbe accessible carbohydrates. Uh, So these are the types of things that we talked about earlier that we don't digest. But it's it's a buffet for the really good types of bacteria we want to promote in our gut. Mm. So those seem to be to date in looking at things that enhance our gut microbiome. In terms of the quality and the types of bacteria we want, plants really seem to be a, a source of powerful food. And, and so when we incorporate more plants into our diet, one of the things that we're doing is really helping those good bacteria in our gut grow. So that, that is another reason, along with other reasons, to incorporate more plants into our diet in a wholesome way. Um, you and I have talked before, you know, a Beyond Meat burger is plant-based, but you're not getting those things that, that are in whole peas. Uh, they're, not, right. they're not the same thing. So they're not exchangeable or transferable, and neither are the benefits, at least at this point. 
So those MACs that you mentioned, I, I forget what it stands for already, but the food <laughs> that we're feeding our gut microbiome, does that have something to do with fiber or are those just yeah. two different? Okay. No, no, exactly. So MACs are microbe accessible carbohydrates. And so fiber would, would fit in there. So fiber is a very general term. There are lots of things that we classify as, as fiber, not all of them actually good. So for example, there's an additive called CMC or carboxymethocellulose, and it's often added to different types of foods. And believe it or not, the government actually allows the CMC, the carboxymethocellulose that's added to a product to count as added fiber. So you may mm. read on the label contains, you know, three grams of added fiber, and it may be all be CMC, which is often derived from the leftovers of processing cottonseed oil. Once you extract oh. the oil, you got a bunch of junk left. And so you can transform that into carboxymethylcellulose, add it back to food, put a positive thing on the front of the label, which is a little bit deceptive, uh, because things like CMC have been shown to negatively impact our gut microbiome. So fiber is a, a, a general term and that's why I like the more specific term, the, the MACs say that those are certainly fit in the family of fiber, but are specifically, you know, kind of good, good minion food. <laughs> good minion food. I love that. <laughs> wow. Okay. So that is another learning that there are bad fibers out there. Cause I always assumed that fiber, like if you see it on the nutrition label, like more of that is, well, not necessarily more is better, but getting enough is, is important. <laughs> Generally, you're right, but unfortunately, something like carboxymethylcellulose is a produced product, and they're allowed to classify that according to the way the, the government labeling laws work as added fiber. So if it says like three grams of natural fiber, meaning mm -hmm. that it isn't something like CMC, you know, it's the products of whole grains, for example, are a good source of, of that, and, and they add that natural whole fiber, that's a great thing for your gut. And that's actually one of the reasons we, we think that, for example, people who are really vigorous about eliminating gluten for their diet and they don't have true celiac disease and go to extremes, end up taking so much fiber out of their diet that it ends up translating into an increased risk for things like obesity and type 2 diabetes. Because really what they're relying on are highly ultra-processed products because they're trying to avoid gluten, which is a naturally occurring substance. And, and just as an aside, even gluten is not one kind of molecule. So anyone who has ever made homemade bread knows that if I use wheat, I get a different type of bread loaf than if I use rye, a, a rye loaf, mm -hmm. and, or a barley loaf. All of those contain gluten, but gluten is two different types of protein coming together with water, and it's formed into these big strands. And every type of flower, every type of plant, the gluten that they produce is slightly different. Uh, I feel seen. So I am one of those people that is gluten intolerant. And cutting out gluten a couple of years ago for my diet actually did help my gut issues a lot. But I recently went on a trip to France and I had heard about the wheat over there being different. And I was able to have bites of baguette and pastry and like with no problem. So I wonder too, if it's like the certain GMO wheat strain that we have here in America, that's part of the issue, but any thoughts there? Yeah, and, and I gotta tell you, your story is not an uncommon story I hear. I heard it from a physician colleague who said almost the exact thing, except they went to Italy. Mm. And they said, well, 
I was ready to, you know, tear up my gut for a month because there's no way, you know, I've been waiting my whole life to go to Italy and I was not <laughs> going to have that pasta. Right. And she said, and I, like you, she said, I ate it and wait, I don't feel bad and mm -hmm. it's delicious. And she said, I ate it for a month and said, I cured myself of my gluten intolerance. And so she came mm -hmm. back and she went to the supermarket and she bought some typical American brand spaghetti and she said she promptly got sick. Mm. Uh, and, and so it's hard to say whether it's a different type of gluten. What I will say is that it could be something that's added to your, the pasta or the bread, right? I don't eat bread when I go out because I can't tolerate it. Mm. I make my own bread. Or if I know I'm visiting a friend who runs a artisanal bakery shop and I know where it comes from, I'll have that bread. But otherwise, like you, if I just go out and I, I grab a sandwich from someplace, I don't feel good uh, mm. afterwards. And what I realize that for me anyway, in my situation, it's not the, the gluten. It's probably all those other things that are added in. And it's also, this is a whole nother show, but it's, it's something we call the matrix effect. You can imagine, you know, Neo and, and, and gang, you know, in, in there, but it's literally what we call the food matrix. So when bread is produced commercially, they use a sugar to get the yeast to get a fast rise. So the whole proof is done in, in like under two hours. It's baked in 18 minutes and it's, it's what's called extruded, which is a form of ultra processing into the pans. And, and that creates a food product that is ultra uh, processed. They've destroyed the natural way that bread forms a matrix and did it so that they can do it very quickly because it's a commercial production. So, right, we don't want bread to sit for 72 hours because that's, that's how we lose money. We want our bread done in two hours. That's how mm -hmm. we make money when we produce lots. And so, like the way I make it, right, so it's going to sit for 48, 72 hours. Then it becomes sourdough bread, so the gluten content is actually less. But the actual matrix, and the way to think about it is, we always talk about nutrients and this and that uh, in our food. Well, but nature packages nutrients. So think of what you order for Amazon, that's your nutrient, but it comes in a box, right? They, they don't just throw the bird feeder on your doorstep because <laughs> uh, it would smash. So it comes in a box. Well, think about how important it is that it's packaged a certain way. Otherwise, it just arrives in little pieces and it's not a functional birdhouse anymore. So the matrix is, is the packaging Amazon uses, right? To deliver those goods, which we might call nutrients to our body. If the packaging is a disaster and the parts are coming in, not as a birdhouse I can go put up and feed my birds in my backyard, but you know, it's a bunch of pieces I can't use. That's sort of the difference between something that's ultra processed and something that has the natural matrix intact. In and so a artisanal loaf or how I make my bread at home is not what we call a Nova three or a minimally processed or processed food. Whereas all that commercial bread is an ultra processed food. And in France, I can guarantee you they do not ultra processed baguettes because that would be a national crime. <laughs> um, you, would, you would probably go to jail in France <laughs> if you tried to ultra process a baguette because none of the French people would have that. Same no. thing with Italian pasta. And so we use real ingredients. We do it in, in, a, in a natural matrix enhancing sort of way. And you get a natural food product. And what you just told me is you don't need to avoid gluten. You need to avoid ultra processed foods that are made with gluten in that way. Because mm. it sounds like you're like me. Because, 
You know, I, I went to one bakery. The guy was from France, Serge. Incredible chef. Uh, incredible baker. And I, I could sit down and eat like six of Serge's baguettes, you know, over a weekend. <laughs> and I mean, they were perfect. I, I, I can't duplicate. I mean, they were perfect. I mean, I make a baguette. Eh, you know, it's all right. These had that, you know, thin, crispy shell. And it was oh. like, it was like, it was like a cloud inside. And you're just like, I don't need any, I don't even need butter. And you felt great. And that's a real baguette, you know, versus this thing you could buy in a grocery store that you could serve as a self-defense weapon. <laughs> oh, yeah, we don't like that. But yeah, oh my gosh, when you describe that, that crispy on the outside with the cloud on the inside. Oh, yeah, it's back. Like an eggshell with a cloud, oh. a crispy eggshell with a cloud inside. And you're like, and, 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 you, and the thing is that you don't need 46 things when you have a sandwich that's made from that because the bread tastes so good. And then, you know, like a piece of cheese or a little jambon or just a little yeah. bit of real butter or whatever. It's like one or two simple real things because it's so good. You don't have to, you know, condiments are like sauces and they hide a multitude of sins. And mm. so we get this American bread for your sandwich, even if it's, you know, made fresh, as they say, but it's, it's awful. And so you hide it with this ocean of condiment, you know, Southwest sauce and Chipotle sauce and Italian dressing and whatever, because you have to hide the taste of it because it's so awful and the texture is so bad. That's not real food. That's the best quote ever. Condiments hide a multitude of sins. <laughs> <laughs> you put that, that as now I have to put. I have to footnote that comes from the late great Tony Bourdain, and yes. he when he talked about sauces in the same way, he's like, a sauce can hide a multitude of sins. Mm. Um, like if you screw up what you're making for dinner, and you still have to you know get it out there because you have a dinner party, make a sauce. Free culinary tips, audience. <laughs> <laughs> that is really good to know. And it makes total sense. You can hide anything with a good sauce. Beware of restaurants that serve everything in a sauce. Yes. <laughs> yeah. It makes me think of too, like if I ever get a Chipotle bowl, they just douse it in sauce at the end. Um, I'm going to transition to some listener questions because we got oh, some okay. good ones in here. First one. So this is from Annabella. I think this one's really interesting. Are there any particular cuisines that lend better to gut health? And you mentioned fermented foods, and maybe that has something to do with this. Yeah, and that is a great question. And I will actually reference a discussion relating to this topic at the talk on food and health from the Asia Pacific Conference just a couple months ago. And one of the, the discussion points that came up that I thought was brilliant probably because I've written a book called Ancient Eats that looks at, at ancient cuisines. But what they talked about was how indigenous cuisines don't make use of ultra-processed ingredients in their preparation. And so whether it's French food or Italian food or Central American food or Mexican food or Japanese food or Thai cuisine or Native American cuisine, for that matter, Inuit cuisine, it's all healthier than the modern Western diet. And so whatever flavor profile appeals to you and that you enjoy, when you can craft those traditional meals and recipes and not use the ultra processed kind of shortcuts in there, you're going to get, I think, something that will taste better, certainly, but also something that, that kind of by definition is going to be healthier for you. So 
if you can, it's it's almost like we need to take a step back and take a lesson from our, our ancestors. And we don't want to throw away technology. We're appreciative of all the knowledge that we have. And, and now we understand why and how some of these foods our ancestors ate were really good for them and kept them alive. They didn't know about a gut microbiome. They just know that this preserved food was good. It tasted good. And they felt good when they ate it. And really, that's all that mattered. Making things more technological uh, and repetitive and the same every time, that's how we want to land a 747, right? You know, my, I don't want my pilot next to my fly going, you know, I've never done it this way before. How about if we don't put the landing gear down? That'd be kind of cool. Let's see if that works, right? That, that's not how we want to do it. But I, I don't know that when it comes to our food that, that that's the best course of action. And so I think there is some ancient wisdom there to be repurposed for us in our everyday lives. And I think Annabelle's question kind of harkens to that. So I think the good news is, yeah, any cuisine you like, any flavor profile, dig in, literally. Uh, just be really cognizant of the ingredients you choose to prepare it and how you prepare it. Love that. I didn't know you wrote a book on ancient eats. Yeah, so really there's a, a book out there, Ancient Eats, and what we looked at was the original uh, Mediterranean diet, so the diet of, of classical Greece around 3400 BC, and then we also looked at the uh, diet of the Vikings, because it's a, sort of the opposite of what we might think about dairy, meat-heavy uh, diet in a very different climate area from classical Greece. Uh, but the, the underlying principle is the same, is that you cannot have a healthy population and think about things like art and philosophy and come up with the atomic theorem and the idea, just to, to tie it all together, of Hippocrates, who said all disease begins in the gut, you know, mm -hmm. 1500 years ago. Also, you know, you can't go out and conquer the known world traveling across the ocean if your population is existing on subsistence, farming, and, you mm -hmm. know, barely getting by, people are suffering malnutrition. So what was the common thread, you know, if any, in these cuisines? And then what, what lessons can we learn from them? And, and I will tell you, it's a little bit of a, a different book from my other ones because I give you some historical guides. It's what I call historical food fiction. So the tour around ancient Greece is based on a real character called Archaeostratus, who literally was sort of the travel food guy of his day. And he would say, like, you want to go to modern-day Istanbul to go ahead and get the bluefish this type time of year. And when you're over here, don't eat this kind of fish because it's not any good till the fall and so on and so mm. forth. And we don't know much about him other than some fragments that people wrote later quoting him. But I filled in his dialogue with quotes from Tony Bourdain, which is, which is why I knew yes. about sauces. And so it's so kind of an ancient Tony Bourdain takes you around ancient Greece, as it were. Uh, and then that. for the Viking trip, I could think of no other chef personality more suited to an angry Viking than Gordon Ramsay. So he will be your guide around the, the Norse cuisine. And I, I will tell you that I, I wrote the Norse chapter and sent it to my friend Daniel over in Sweden, who is one of the world's authorities on the Viking diet. He's a food anthropologist. <laughs> and so he proofread the manuscript. It got a thumbs up from him. So you can take all the food history in those chapters at face value. Wow. Okay. I love a good food history. So I'm definitely <laughs> going to pick up a copy of that. 
Um, okay, switching into the science side a little bit. So a question from Julia C. What role does genetics play in gut health? Or is it purely about what you're eating? And you mentioned the, the twin case study, but was is there like more to the story around genetics? Yeah, there, there sure is. Great question, Julia. And there does seem to be some genetic component. We don't have a really good handle on that at the moment. It's one of the things we're learning, but certainly genetics do play a role in at least preparing the garden. If we look at it that way, that, you know, sort of our gut is the garden and, and the gut microbiome is what we grow in that garden. There are genetic components to the gut microbiome. With that being said, it seems that within a fairly long range, we're able to influence that. So it, it's not like, gosh, if you're born with Down syndrome, you're not going to be able to have a diet to fix that. What we have seen is that we do have a, a very profound and powerful ability to affect the composition and quality of our gut microbiome. And, and I'd like to extend that even a little bit more because that's what it's turning out for a lot of diseases. You know, people say, well, you know, everyone in my family had a heart attack and they died when they were 40. So I guess I'll do what I want because that's going to happen to me. Mm. But what we know from epigenetics, which is an emerging science, is that's not true. So our environment affects how our genes and which genes are expressed. Disease is really a combination of your genetics plus your environment. We may not at this time have an ability to affect our genetics to a large degree yet, but we can certainly exercise some control over our environment and those choices. So, you know, when I'm home and I'm eating what I cook and I feel pretty good, I don't regularly take probiotics, but I definitely take them when I travel because just changing time zones is a stress on our gut microbiome and can change it in a negative way. So I took it when I, when I had to be on call because this disruption in the sleep pattern alters our gut microbiome. So even to answer Julia's question, it's really the totality of our environment. You mentioned something earlier, Jane, in terms of stress. And so when we're very stressed, we're changing our gut microbiome. But we didn't really get a chance to touch on it, but we thought in, in the old days, brain told gut what to do. Eat, eat food, digest food. And the brain would say, okay, full. And that was it. But it, it's more like, what's the big freeway there? The 404, something like that. That's what it's like at rush hour. It's wall-to-wall -wall communication nonstop. And that communication is not only through nerves, like the enteric plexus and the vagal nerve system, but also through hormone communication. So at any time, randomly speaking, if I draw a blood sample, about 40% of those communication molecules come from your gut. So they're constantly in communication. Constantly, yeah. Yeah. So I have a couple of questions for Dr. Mike, the cardiologist, uh, yeah. but what is the connection between the microbiome and heart health? Oh, very profound. And I'm glad you asked that. All right. This it's... is a question from Taylor. Okay. Good question. When we actually look at those heart artery plaques, so we have devices, some things we call atherectomy. We can go in, we actually pull part of that plaque out. And when we remove that plaque, then we can obviously study it scientifically. And what they found inside the blockages of the heart arteries was DNA that corresponded to bacteria in the gut. And we find that there is a type of molecule called TMAO, I won't bore you with the long scientific name, uh, that is directly a result of 
the type and kind of bacteria we have in our gut that turns out to be one of the most powerful predictors for not only heart disease, but chronic kidney disease that we can look at. So it's so powerful, in fact, that some health centers now, some hospital systems, et cetera, are, are actually drawing and measuring TMAO levels as a marker of cardiovascular risk. So that old saying that the way to someone's heart was through their stomach turns out to be 100% true. <laughs> it's literally connected. Literally. Wow. That's fascinating. Um, I have a set of questions from Marina and Julia A, and they're related to how we can diagnose our gut health. So Julia is wondering how, how we can work with our doctors to look at gut health, you know, what, what are some good questions to ask? And then Marina is wondering how we can self-diagnose gut issues. What are safe ways to do that at home and any resources you can point to? So um, in terms of diagnosing gut health, there are kits that are available. There are companies that are doing that. And I think even, don't quote me on this, but I even think the big DNA companies like uh, 23andMe and, and even Ancestry.com now, for a fee, they will go ahead and a analyze and extrapolate uh, your genetics into food. And I think some of them do the gut microbiome. There are specific companies, whereas we talked about earlier, you send some poop to them, they send you some things back. The caveat with that uh, is twofold. One, as I mentioned earlier, and it's just one of the, the realities of where we are now is that there are just big gaps in our knowledge. So even when you get a report, it's not telling you the whole story because we just don't have those pages, those bits of the map, as it were. The second is that a lot of these are private companies, and so they don't share the same library. It's kind of like getting a translation from a bunch of people using slightly different dictionaries to, to translate into another language. You know, so if, if I'm translating something from Swahili and I use one dictionary, you might get a different interpretation from me than you might get from somebody else. Mm. And of course, some of those lapses and in interpretations, not that they're intentional, but they can have significant implications. So it's, it's certainly if you want to get a baseline, that's one way to do it. Many doctors now, if you talk to your doctor, will do it. Some of this is covered by insurance. Some is out of pocket. So that's something to make sure you ask before you tell them you want that test. You don't want to get a bill for 450 bucks for this. Understand the limitations, you know, of the data when you get it. With that being said, what are some ways that, you know, we can sort of holistically improve our gut health? Uh, one is, is simply to be aware, like you were, Jane, you're like, you know, gosh, I'm going to try getting rid of gluten. And you did. And you said, man, I feel better. Mm -hmm. and, and so one way to then go further and say, okay, well, you know, maybe I'm going to make my own piece of bread, something with bread and see how that does for me. Mm. Or maybe I'll buy this from my local baker who I know is artisanal. And, you know, I have a guy, one of the few people locally I'll buy bread from, they buy their own flour. They mill their own flour. That's organic. Wow. It's local here in Montana. They ferment it 48 to 72 hours. I'm a nerd, so I know them. I go to the <laughs> store, I see how they make it. But, you know, if, if you have a source like that, you can say, you yeah, know, let me try this like you did in France. And that kind of gives you some insight. So you can kind of be your own detective. You can do the things that we talked about, you know, in this program, which is, hey, let me, you know, try some fermented foods and find some that I like, for example. And it's not always what you think, right? So the naturally made salumis of Italy, they're naturally fermented. 
So you think about, oh, like in the U.S., that would be a processed meat, which by God, don't ever, you know, get that stuff that's in the packet and start chewing on it. But if you're visiting in Italy and you see those, you know, dry salumis that are hanging and they've got that white, it's actually mold, edible, mm. you know, type of mold or fungus on the outside, those are fermented. It's a living food. Real cheeses, not the kind you're going to spray out of a can that's <laughs> day glow orange. That, okay. that doesn't count. But if you were in France and you got a real cheese that was done in a traditional manner, that's a traditionally fermented foods. So it doesn't always have to be mm. sauerkraut. But certainly look, because almost every culture, it turns out, indigenous culture, historical culture around the world has some form of fermented food. So I was actually making cheese the other weekend, some homemade mozzarella for my pizza. I used a leftover whey to make ricotta. And then I have a bunch of whey that's left. And so what I did was take some of my leftover vegetables from uh, our CSA and I put them in and made a pickle. So that's how the Vikings nice. made pickles. They used whey as the pickling liquid. So it, it gives you a kind of pickle with a different flavor than traditional like vinegar base. Mm. So these are all ways to find what you like to eat and, and find those foods that'll, that'll help your gut. I'm, I'm getting plenty of recipe ideas. Um, <laughs> in our last couple minutes, we have a question from Pam. This might be long, but we'll try to just get the nugget. Why is it that sometimes you can eat as clean as you possibly can and still have bloating? Yeah, so it's difficult without knowing exactly what you mean by clean. Because, for example, mm -hmm. some people say, well, I eat clean because, you know, I eat vegetarian or I eat vegan. Yeah. I go to the store. I buy the package. It says vegetarian, vegan on it. And I eat it and I feel awful. Now, how can that possibly be? Because I'm sure that that's, you know, the best diet ever. The, the problem is like almost 90% of what's marked vegetarian in a supermarket is ultra processed food. These studies have been done. So that could be one thing. Uh, I could tell you if you're only occasionally eating clean and you eat something like a big salad, you may feel bloated because that's a, a natural process that you're creating a lot more gas because you don't have the bacteria and the fermentation that's that's going on there. If you are constantly feeling bloated and or you notice that, you know, you belch up really kind of nasty tasting stuff all the time, then you, you, you may want to see your doctor too because there are things like delayed gastric emptying where what happens is the food doesn't move along and it, it actually sits and ferments too much and it mm. can cause abdominal distension and, and, and bloating. So uh, tell her to send back in maybe with a little bit more what she means by clean and then we can give her a better answer. Sounds perfect for our next follow-up. That's a great segue. I've learned so much in this past hour. I'm sure our listeners will too. Uh, we're excited to have you back on as a regular guest. Thank you so much, Mike. Oh, thank you, Jane. Um, I don't tell anyone else, but you're my favorite. <laughs> Yay! Everybody heard that? <laughs> and that's a wrap. Thank you so much for tuning in. Remember to nourish your body, and I'll talk to you next time.